With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Podcast special in search of the elusive general manager. Uh, without hesitation, let me bring on my co-host. First, I'll start with the proprietor of this whole operation, Sam. How you doing, buddy? Well, I am on location today in Jersey City, but by the end of it, I'll have the world on a string on Sinatra Drive in Hoboken. You know, it's funny. We had this conversation before. I, I, I named you the proprietor, Rich. You're actually bankrolling this whole thing, and we need to straighten that out. Say hello, Rich. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Mike. Um, so, hello, everybody. And um, I like calling Sam the proprietor. I've, used, I've usually referred to him as the brains behind the operation and, and the founder and all that, but I like proprietor. That sounds so official. <laughs> well, we are here. <laughs> we are here to talk Mets baseball, and again, uh, this search for the elusive general manager. We have so many opinions on this that, you know, we've shared over the podcast. So I, I figured let's start just by setting the record straight before we move on. Very quickly, uh, we know May and the month of June just torpedoed the Mets season. Uh, we have opinions as to what needs to happen moving forward in order to correct that. That being said, Sandy Alderson stepped down due to health reasons. And here's the question. In hindsight, did Jeff Wolpon throw Sandy Alderson under the bus? Sam? Well, you know, I keep hearing, and I know that it's it's the cliche thing to do and the, the trendy thing to do to, to uh, hit on the Wilpons, and rightly so. They, they have plenty of criticisms to be passed around. Um, however... I don't think that a lot of people like to, to group the idea that he threw them under the bus. You know, Sandy's this, you know, he, he's an, uh, an elder GM who had to leave because of health reasons. Now, you know, just like, like in other facets, I don't think that, you know, other facets of life, I don't think that exempts you from criticism. I wish him nothing but the best of health, as I've always said. But I don't think that, you know, Jeff needs to. I, I don't think the idea is that Jeff deflected criticism by criticizing Sandy. I think that Sandy had some great, great moments over the, the course of seven years. We went to a World Series because of it. But I don't think that that exempts him from the criticism that the game passed him by and caught up to him. And I, I think that, rightly so, Jeff pointed some of these issues out. Uh, I don't have exactly the things that he said. But I I don't think that uh, Jeff was out of out of his elements to be criticizing Sandy Alderson when talking about what he's going to be looking for in, in the off season from a GM. Uh, 
you know what? You're not wrong. But at the same time, I'm just playing devil's advocate here for a second. The Mets have a long history of saying not-so-nice things about people once they're out the door. Now, Rich, you know, I like to layer things upon uh, each other. So, you know, you answer the question, did Jeff Wolfon throw Sandy Olderson uh, under the bus? But at the same time, your opinion on his desire to keep this three-headed monster intact and the fact that John Rico was part of the first uh, first wave of interviews along with Jeff. Well, you know, I find it hard to disagree with what Sam just said about Sandy Alderson and did Jeff throw him under the bus. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's a, it's a business of accountability. And if you look at facts, yes, Sandy Alderson, the Cespedes trade that was kind of, you know, happened uh, serendipitously, but the Cespedes trade was a great moment. Uh, bringing Syndergaard in was a great moment. Getting the team to the World Series was, was certainly an achievement. Um, so, but his portfolio is very mixed. You know, he leaves the team with a very poor, he left him with a very poor farm system. You know, one of the worst in baseball, I believe 27th out of 30. And that has to fall on his shoulders. Um, some of the contracts he signed certainly, uh, were not the best. So for him, I don't think his, his, his resume of work is entirely positive. Now, when he leaves the organization, you know, Jeff had some things to say. Well, you know what? That's kind of what you sign up for when you become a general manager of a baseball team, especially one in New York. I mean, look what, look what Steinbrenner said about his folks on their way out the door. So it is a, a results business, and you are accountable. And maybe it's not nice, but sometimes the world isn't nice. You know, sometimes you're accountable and people say, you screwed this up or you screwed that up. So um, I really don't have a problem with what uh, Jeff Wolfon said about Sandy. And then moving to your other question about Rico and the three-headed monster and all of that. Now, here's where I can criticize Jeff Wolfon and, and the Wolfons in general, because having Rico think about this. Well, John, you know, you've been a part of this organization for a long time, and as assistant general manager, you're not really a candidate for the job going forward, which is the job you've clearly been angling for. But would you mind being a part of the interview team so we can hire the person who is going to be the GM? It just sounds weird. And you wonder what Rico's head, you know, where his head was when he was doing this. It's just a very bizarre thing. And the idea of keeping the three-headed monster is the other side of the Wilpon coin, because that just shows you that they're exerting a lot of influence. Why not let the new GM determine if these guys have a role? You know, why does Jeff have to say before even come in the door, these are my three boys, you know, my three boys are going to stay. It just shows the meddling that we all hope would stop. I'm glad you took it in that direction because that is exactly why I wanted to set the condition because we have two individuals who just rejected the Mets outright. Dad Levine uh, with the Twins organization and Ben Sherrington, and to me that's a pretty big name to be rebuffing the Mets. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't remember who said it or who wrote it, uh, but they were correct in saying that, you know, this job, a National League job in New York, should be one of the elite positions in all of baseball, and everyone should want this position, but for some reason you have people just running away from it like the play. And Ben Sherrington was one of them. Uh, Sad Levine, perhaps people uh, are, are, aren't as 
familiar with, but Sherrington is definitely one of those executives who, who are, you know, well-known throughout baseball. So the fact that these two individuals, and I'm sure there's another one that, that escapes me, but they just rejected the Mets outright. So, Rich, pick it up from there. Well, I think that's a perfect segue, Mike, from where we just were, which is they don't want to work for the Wilpons. It's that simple. And what else can it be? Because you hit the nail on the head. You know, New York National League Baseball is it's prestigious, especially when you could be the person who brings this team, you know, back to prominence. So the the cachet value of the role and the glitz around the role is something that aspiring GMs or GMs in other smaller towns should should be, you know, chomping at the bit to get. So then you ask yourself, well, why are these people walking away in droves? And the reason is pretty clear. You know, they don't want to come into this situation with this meddling ownership and with what is probably still a bit of a small market mentality. So, um, you know, while earlier, like I said, we don't, I don't hold the Wilpons accountable for some stuff, but here's one where how can you not hold them accountable? People are walking away from a glitzy job in the biggest city, a baseball crazed market because they don't want to work for these owners. There is no other rational explanation, and that's clearly what it is. So here's a situation where the ownership is really hurting the team because, you know, you'd love to have a Sherrington as, as your GM you, or vice president of baseball operations, and it's just not happening because it's not the work environment these people want. Sam, just to be fair, Sherrington also turned down the San Francisco Giants, and Ken Rosenthal in a tweet said that Sherrington wants to build from the ground up. Uh, why wouldn't he want to do that in New York? But, you're, you're, you know, the same question applies to you. The fact that these guys are just rejecting the Mets outright. Yeah, um, I mean, the Wilpons have a reputation. I think, like we've been trying to give Jeff specifically right now credit for, he might be trying to change some of that reputation, but you can't shake it off that easily. Uh, it takes a little while to change behaviors and to change, and, and he might be adapting as comfortably as he can right now. Um, and I like the direction he's going, you know, and, and we'll get into it a little bit more thoroughly in a little bit regarding, um, you know, the candidate, uh, Doug Melvin, who, who uh, was dropped as one of the finalists. Um, and, but yeah, it, it should be a coveted job, uh, and it's not, and the Wilpons have to do, uh, a lot of mirror looking, if you will, and they might be doing so, you know, it's, it's just, it, it is how it is, you know, like I've always said with Sandy Alderson, he was brought in to correct a 50 year, uh, um, issue with foundation where the, the, the cement never settled. And mind you, he did a great job in setting them up better to have some long-term success. It was still a little bit of a blip on the map, and now they have to correct some of the, the offsetting once he had to go all in in 2015. Um, I like the names that we'll, uh, we'll get into, um, specifically just the fact that there's a raise guy involved, and, and it's just every year you look up, and there they are again. And especially this year, it, it was remarkable. And they, they just, you know, talking about talk about a three-headed monster in the uh, the AL East with the Rays at the bottom of it. But, uh, yeah, I you know, 
they, they have a lot to correct, but they may actually be on their way of doing so. Unfortunately, it wasn't soon enough for some of the big names in baseball to want the job. Well, you mentioned him, Doug Melvin. Let's stick with him for a second because the fact that he was a finalist, one of the final three, and fell out of the running today, uh, that suggests to me that Jeff won a tug of war against his father. His father wanted a more uh, traditional scouting-oriented type of individual, whereas Jeff wants to be a little bit more progressive. So the fact that Doug Melvin is out of the picture tells me that internally Jeff may have won a battle against his father. Rich, what, what say you? Yeah, I think that, that kind of adds up. I think Melvin clearly, you know, it was like which one of these is not like the others, right? Melvin stuck out as being, you know, older chronologically with lot, with older philosophies. And, um, yes, we know that Fred wanted the, you know, traditional philosophy of, you know, going by your eyes and scouting and that kind of thing. And Melvin clearly represented that, and he's now out. And, well, at least we know we'll get into these guys later, but we know Bloom is heavily into the analytics side of it. And then uh, then Wegerin, uh, Wegerin probably is somewhere in the middle. But, but anyway, it does seem to be that Jeff got his way and that the Mets are not going to go down the, you know, the old school approach, or at least not totally down that path. So, um, you, you know, and, and I, I think another part of it, I don't know what you guys might think of this, it, it might also be, the public outcry about Melvin in the past few days was pretty was pretty significant. You know, people were people were pointing to the fact that when he left the Brewers' job, you know, that people said that um, that they were saying, well, the guy was quoted as saying it's a younger man's game, and the game it passed me by, and now he's three years right. older, and and so does it make sense to did he get any younger in three years? I don't think he did, and um, so I think there was a lot of public outcry about that. That how can you do this? You know, a guy who who self-admittedly said that the game um, may have passed him by and are going to put him in. So maybe there was some response to public pressure. I wonder what you guys think of that. Uh, I agree with you 100%. In fact, I think, you know, uh, Doug Melvin was in a situation where he was yearning to get back into the game, and he would have been agreeable to any preconditions the Wilpons would have set for him. And that's a situation that terrifies me. Sam? Uh, okay, let's go with that whole uh, uh, Moneyball thing, and, and I think it's actually a quote from the movie slash book um, of one of the, you know, they're sitting around the scouting table and sitting around the draft board, and they're talking about an ugly girlfriend means no confidence, and, you, and you're just like, can we, can we, uh, <laughs> can we put this past us, please? You know, it's just it's all these old school mentalities of this this idea that you got to use your eyes. Yes, you definitely have to use your eyes. There's an element of that uh, that you have to do. But you know, at the same time, like I was saying with Sandy Alderson, you you have to have an idea for what this new world of baseball needs because otherwise it will pass you by. And if Doug Melvin is quoted as having said that, uh, then I had no necessary confidence that he was going to be able to do the job that I am looking for. And, and, and it's a perfect example. When Sandy Alderson left, you saw a change in the fundamental way that the Mets played baseball. And it, it, instead of being station to station and exactly what 
Andy Alderson has wanted to do all the way back to being part of the A's. Um, it changed, it completely changed into more of a, and, and, you know, something that we as, as baseball fans sometimes crave, which is a little bit more spunk, a little bit more tenacity, a little bit more, more, uh, um, you know, energy, uh, which, which is also can uh, fall into some old school ways, but it, 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 it's just, it's, if you're talking about it being a young man's game, these are some of the best at, you know, nobody's ever been as in shape. And sometimes I think to a detriment uh, when it comes to having too tight of muscles, but these, these guys are kind of like our world renowned athletes now. And, and they, why not let them, you know, run as fast as they can when they need, when a ball is put in play. So I, I think that, uh, it's it's the right way, and I, I'm, I you hit the nail on the head too, Mike. About uh, if they had brought Doug in, he would have just been like, "All right, sure, guys, why, whatever you say, whatever you say." And I didn't, <laughs> I don't want that right now. You won't, you know, right. and that's what is so interesting about about the Rays guy that I, I keep mentioning is just like he has figured a way, and maybe this is what they're thinking about too, um, from a small market perspective to keep the Rays in contention year after year since 2008. And it's been impressive. And I'm not saying that it's obviously he's only a, a, a cog in that machine, uh, but just like with uh, Andrew Friedman in, in L.A., uh, who has kept them in contention since he came aboard with the Magic Johnson crew, it, 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 they, they, there seems to be something working within modern-day baseball and the world parity that, that exists right now in, that, uh, in baseball. All right, you guys, uh, you guys are chomping at the bit. You're dying to say their names. It's Heim Bloom from the Tampa Bay Rays. And I'm going to tap into my inner Bavaria, being that I spent a couple of years there. His name is Brody, and I'm going to pronounce that W with as is like a V, uh, as far as my experience yep. goes. So it's Brody Van yep. Wagenen. Uh, those are the two names. But before we get to them, let's talk about the guys, and, and gals for that matter, who didn't make it. First, let me start with an agent named Casey Close, an agent. Now, that's really out of the box, really out of the box. Uh, you could say what you will about that. Gary LaRock is an old-school uh, scouting guy, uh, probably on Fred's list. Uh, but uh, the John Watson from Washington, he was a younger guy, but also with a scouting background. Uh, perhaps these guys lost out in you know, this inner battle between Jeff and Fred. Uh, we spoke of Doug Melvin. Then there was Dave Littlefield, who also interviewed in the first round, former Pittsburgh gen- general manager. And, uh, you know, I'm just terribly unimpressed by that. Uh, and then there's Kim, who, 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 who worked for the Yankees, who worked for the Dodgers, who worked for MLB. And you know what? As far as I could see on Twitter, she had a lot of support. So any of those people, if you have anything to offer, uh, Rich, you want to start? Well, I thought Kim Ng has a great reputation. You know, she has a great reputation in baseball. When she was with the Dodgers, people had nothing but great things to say. Um, having worked with the Yankees as well and with MLB, it just seemed like she had the pedigree from those perpetually winning organizations. Now, again, we don't know if she didn't interview well. We don't know, you know, exactly what she may have not had that they were looking for. But I know when I saw that particular list, I was in, I was intrigued by Kim Ng for the reasons I mentioned. 
I was intrigued by Casey Close for the same reasons I'm intrigued by Von uh, Wagenin, um, because he's an agent. And I think that is, just like you said, Mike, it's a different look at it. You know, you're taking somebody who's an agent who knows that side of the business. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean he will know how to run a baseball team from this side, but he knows that side of the business. He probably has a lot of really good contacts, probably could – you know, work out some deals for the organization. So it's an interesting way to look at it, you know, by maybe going on the agent side. So those were the two of the names you mentioned of the ones that did not make it. Those were the two that that intrigued me the most. I agree with you on Littlefield. I just didn't see enough there to to really think much of him. And LaRocque, to me, just seemed like, um, you know, a really old school baseball guy, you know, stuck in his way. There's just something unimpressive about him. But again, we don't know a lot about these people, but from what I've read, those are my thoughts. Uh, Rich, I, I want you to continue. What, what insights do you think an agent, a, a very good agent, has into baseball organization? The running of an organization, I think, would be that person's blind spot. I think where that person would have, you know, it's sort of like having the other team's playbook. You know, when, when you've negotiated contracts for players, and he's obviously negotiated some pretty big contracts for some pretty prestigious players, you know how that game is played. Like, in other words, you know what might be of value to that person, that maybe, maybe there's a way, you know, when they're talking to their clients, the client might say, look, you know, I, I'd really like to have five years, I'd like to have this much per year, but I'll sacrifice both of those for a limited no trade. And the agent obviously doesn't disclose all that when negotiating with the team, has that in the back pocket. And, and it just seems like he would know what, that's gonna, what that looks like and how that feels to have that negotiation from the other side. And I think that could be really valuable in bringing in free agents to the organization. Um, but again, I do think his at least a parent blind spot would be building a team from the organization side, but, but still intriguing to me. I don't even know why I bring this up, Sam, but would have, would hiring Kim in, in any shape, way or form uh, force the media to revisit that whole lawsuit against Jeff Wilpon and, and having them say that he's only trying to make up for that? It would have gone. It would have gone there, wouldn't it? It would have deteriorated to that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, Sam, you seem to be in a bad spot. Try to find a better signal. Rich, do you think that dynamic would have played out? Yes, for sure. I think, um, you know, I, I no matter how sensitive we try to be to gender issues and all those things these days the fact is if if they hired a female it would have been great i think but also the first thing the media would have jumped on is this is the will pond's way to try to make that whole you know child out of wedlock thing go away and you know it's a cosmetic move hiring a woman and all that and yes it would have definitely happened um it hopefully would have gone away after some time when people realize, you know, that, that Kimming is, is qualified on her own merits and is not here to, you know, be a token for the Wilpons to smooth over a, um, a, a sexist-based thing. Uh, but it definitely would have gone there, for sure. It's definitely a hypothetical, but, you know, as you, as you say, Rich, she's, 
she's qualified. She's more than qualified. Uh, and I, I think that would have been a, a terribly intriguing dynamic going on there. And it would have been a, it would have been a downright shame had it gone down, you know, that street. Uh, I, I guess that's my biggest point. It would have been a shame. Thank goodness we're only dealing in a hypothetical. Because it would have been a downright shame had it gone down that route. Uh, Sam, how do you signal now, buddy? Sam is still experiencing issues. All right, Rich, let, let, let's start focusing on these final two. But Melvin is officially out of the race. He didn't make the, last, the final cut. We caught wind of that today, or at least I caught wind of that today. Did you know of that prior to today? I caught wind of it today. I caught wind that um, it was, three, as of last night, it was three people, and now it's two. So I caught wind of it today. All right, so... You know, you've been in Deutschland, so you know Brody von Wagenen, uh, and, and you elaborated on, on his potential insight as an agent into organizational issues. He has six clients on the Mets, one of them being the Grom. Uh, is, is that not a conflict of interest? Not really. I, I think, you know, in organizations that happens all the time, you know, um, where you say to somebody, look, okay, you know, the minute you sign on to work for me, you're not that anymore. If you were a doctor in a previous life or whatever, you're not that. You now work for me and you're this. And so, and I think in this day and age, Mike, I think that's a non-issue. I really think so. Um, I think he can just move past it and say, okay, you know, now I'm going to, he knows Jake, which is great. And that's what I was saying before, which is he, he probably knows what's really important to DeGrom and what DeGrom might respond to and not respond to. And I think that puts him in a good position to work with Jacob DeGrom. But I think he, could, I think he would be professional enough to step away from the prior relationship and realize that he works for the Wilpons now and that his task is to work for the team. Let's check in with Sam one more time. Sam, how's your signal now? Sam is still experiencing issues. Uh, Hein Bloom from the Tampa Bay Rays, very well-rounded, uh, quite literally in all, specs, in all aspects of running the organization, and he's young, uh, which, you know, is good, you know, because when we were young, what, what was the saying? Never trust anybody over 30, right? Right. Baby boomers ruined the, ruined the planet. So, you know, here we are. Uh, you know, the next generation is indeed taking over. Uh, perhaps this guy, I like his background. I like his well-roundedness. Uh, I have more positive things to say about him than negative. I, I don't have many negative things to say about him other than, other than I'm old and, and perhaps, uh, you know, a little bit riddled with anxiety like perhaps Fred might be because I trust those old scouting types. I'll bring up analytics before I throw it back to you. All right, analytics. Here we are. We're in the era of analytics. And over the course of 162 games, you know what? That's fine. Because when you're dealing with the law of averages, you know, especially over 162 games, you're going to be proven right more often than not. But here we are in the playoffs. And we got one manager who's knocked off several teams to include the defending World Series champions who understands that analytics don't necessarily have a chance to play themselves out or analytic minded baseball doesn't necessarily have a chance to play itself out in a short series, but you have to manage small ball 
uh, you know, you have to approach that mentality, uh, all hands on deck. Uh, and, of course, I'm talking about Alex Cora versus his, his opponents and, and his usage of the starting pitchers as relievers and circumventing what was supposed to have been a weakness. So, you know, analytics, I don't want the Mets to become, you know, we, we're going from uh, 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 an analytics department staffed by three people. I don't want to get addicted to the stuff now because I think the Yankees are really addicted to analytics, and I think they've, you know, this year and last. Rich. Yeah, you know, I think I think you hit it, Mike. It's going overboard on either one is probably not a good idea. You know, if so, think about it, right? I'll hyperbole here, of course, but if the Mets brought in a bunch of 65-year-olds who had been scouts and you know had old school philosophy and, and said, okay, this is now our group, probably not a good idea. Bringing in nothing but a bunch of 32-year-olds, you know, who are who are stuck in the Excel spreadsheets and and don't really value old-fashioned scouting, probably not a good idea. So blending the two seems to make the most sense. I agree you don't want to go overboard on, on the analytics piece. And, I, you know, you're, I think you're also right in the sense that there are no absolutes. Like, in other words, the analytics approach doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win every year. It doesn't mean it's going to play in the short series like you're talking about. Everything in, in life is in moderation, right? Baseball is the same way. You you need to incorporate all kinds of different ways of building your team, ways of evaluating players, all of that. You know, and, and to go overboard on any one, I think that just sets you up for failure. I mean, if the entirely analytics approach was always the only one that would work, why didn't the, why isn't Theo Epstein one every year? He's sort of the you know the the poster child of that. Why hasn't he won each and every year? Why, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. If the San Francisco Giants are, are pretty much built on, on the scouting philosophy, as we know, and they, they won in the World Series in 10, 12, and 14. So you can win both ways. Um, can you guys hear me? Colin, Sam. Sam, you there. Hey, buddy. Yeah. Can uh, you hear me? My question, yeah, we hear you fine. We're finally talking about Brody Van Wagenen. And Heim Bloom. How much did you hear of what I was saying about Kemp? Where did I leave off? Yeah, you know what? You, you, you cracked up. You were coming in and out until you finally, you know, blicked out. So, uh, you know, we'll revisit right. that. But I, would, I just wanted to throw it at you this way, that Heim Bloom is, I think, I read, if I read correctly, 34 years old. How does it feel to have somebody roughly your age running the Mets? Well, I remember when it was like a big deal when Brian Cashman took over at age 32, and here we are now, um, right. back in 1998. So I, I think that for one, it makes me realize that I am now the elder statesman if I were a baseball player, and it's like, oh, jeez. Um, and, and yet I'm if I were a GM, I'd be part of the young generation. And, you know, I keep, I keep going back with that uh, Bloom. Um, it, it, it just seems he seems to be part of a really consistent culture with the Tampa Bay Rays and to the Wilpons, uh, you know, I think one of the things the Wilpons might be able to work within a budget because the Rays obviously do not 
uh, go towards the moon when it comes to their money. And so I, I think that it's exactly what everybody around the Mets has really been craving after Sandy Alderson, like I keep saying, got the foundation of the franchise under control. Um, I, I, I think I think that it's the correct way to go, even if analytics shouldn't hold completely firm, kind of like Rich was saying. It's, it's, you know, it's Theo Epstein doesn't win the World Series every year, although he is a Hall of Famer now. Um, I, I think that it's the right way, the right direction to go with the Mets franchise, especially if some of the higher coveted people are turning the job down. It, it, you know, I'm not exactly sure what he's going to be thinking about when it comes to Mickey Calloway, but it might be the, a, a match made in heaven. Um, in terms of, and, and I, I'm, Mike, you're gonna, I'm gonna let you go ahead and pronounce the agent's name for me, uh, uh, Johanna Cespedes's agent's name for me, Brody Von <laughs> Wagenen. Take the W Wagenen. and pronounce it like a V. Wagenen. Well, it's the reason. It's the reason why I get shut down whenever I say Kevin Plavecki because that's clearly <laughs> the actual way of pronouncing it instead of Kevin Plavecki. It's like you take a hard, you take a hard stop at, at the red light there. You don't keep keep it flowing anyway. Um, Brody, Brody, Mister Brody. <laughs> uh, I, I, it, it is interesting. I think Rich really brought up most of the things that I could, I could about the angle of the agent going into that. I mean, um, he might have to catch up. Similar, you know, you can't just. Expect a pitching coach to all of a sudden have success as a major league manager, uh, especially in the National League, switching from the American League, and that's what we're seeing with Mickey Calloway. But at the same time, we also saw Mickey Calloway um, a little bit with how to do things by the end of it and and play the game, you know, manage the game a little bit better. And so I oh. think that's my my last concern with somebody transitioning from being an agent to being a, uh, in the front office. Um, because he also might bring better insight, especially with a, uh, a team that's been struggling to figure their way out for about 30, 40 years in the Wilpons organization, that he might be able to bring uh, a, a completely new idea to how you need to be running this organization based off of how he negotiates with agents. So how he, how he negotiates for players and would with agents. So I think both are, are – um, it's nice to be blindsided by the fact that it's not Doug Melvin and that they're they're thinking slightly outside the box. You guys hear that? You remember when you heard about how you know uh, uh, Fred Wilpon was a little weary of thinking, a little wary of thinking outside the box because Mickey Callaway kind of backfired. It 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 was just such an asinine thing, and I keep going back to Fred Wilpon's thought process. You know, he's a Brooklyn boy. Of course, I love his Brooklyn roots, but whether it be the sun is shining, whether it be uh, uh, skeptical that, uh, about the Yankees being able to sustain anything, even though it's happening right in front of him, um, I just think the game is passing him by, of all people. And, and I think that Jeff is right to be winning the tug of war with how, you know, the direction they need to go with, with the person making the majority of the front office decisions here. Well, I congratulate both of you for changing my mind because had one of you been hosting and I had to answer that question, I would have been ripping this whole concept of interviewing an agent. And you guys enlightened me. Uh, 
with your opinions and insight as to how that might be a good idea. Uh, you, you really have me thinking a different way uh, than when this show started, honestly. Uh, because I didn't think it was a good idea from Joe. Having heard it from you guys, well, I certainly have to consider it now. Uh, I, I honestly mean that. You changed my mind about that. Uh, no conflict no conflict of interest. How, huh, Sam? With Brody? Well, okay, so you were talking about, I mean, he, he most likely, if he's right now, what, you guys said he's the Grom's agent? Well, he's the Grom's agent. He has six clients on the Mets. He, he's a he's a co-owner or a co-something of CAA baseball. Uh, so I would think, you know. So does so so unlike the presidency, does he have to give up any of those conflicts of interest? I don't know. I don't know. You know that would I have to play itself out. I, it, it's a different thing whether he his they were his clients, and obviously I think they probably just end up going with somebody else at CAA. The fact that he's a co-owner of CAA does bring a little bit more curiosity to the table. Yeah. Uh, he is in fact that CAA baseball. So there it is. So, you know, here, here we go. Two candidates pick one. I think uh, we're all in favor of Heim Bloom. Are we not rich? Well, if you think about Heim Bloom, he went to Yale, which is kind of cool from my perspective, but, um, isn't he the quintessential double-edged sword? Because think about it. He comes from the Rays, and what's the first thing you say? You said it yourself a few minutes ago. We think about the Rays. They're always there. They're always in contention. They do it on a shoestring budget, and isn't that cool? So if you bring in Bloom, are you saying to some degree that the frugalness will continue? And we're bringing in a guy who could win on a low budget, which is why they brought Will. Uh, I'm sorry, why they brought Sandy Alderson in the first place. So is that? Yeah, okay, great. You know, he's able to compete on a limited budget, but does that also say we're going to have a limited budget going forward? So we need this guy. So um, he's. Uh, may I may I jump in, Rich? May I jump in? Sure. Please do. I think the biggest issue has been how the money has been spent, as opposed to to the lack of spending. If you look at it, especially the last few years since they won the World Series, they've had a $150 million uh, budget, and it's also been the highest in the history of the Mets. So uh, I, I, don't care how, I don't care how much money is spent. I care where it's spent. You know, enough Bobby Manias, enough Oliver Perez's. It's, that's basically what we're looking for. We, like, we would not be talking – about Madoff, we would not be talking about the way the Wilpons do business if they they were winning. If they were winning year in and year out, we applaud them for not wasting their money and actually making it work. And so that's not my concern. It's only my concern making it work. Yeah, there, there's something to that, Sam. I think the other side of that, though, is you're right. It's Starts with how the money has been spent, but look at Lorenzo Cain. You know, they, they didn't want to go and give him the years he wanted, the money he wanted. Yes, that's partially because they had spent money inappropriately in other places or not the best investments in other places, but it also means that they're making decisions based upon that. Like, in other words, 
they're not willing. They're, they still have that philosophy of we project what our revenue is going to be, and then we spend according to that, right? That's not the way the Yankees do it. It's not the way the Dodgers do it, Red Sox do it. it it's, it's that philosophy that's still there, that, you know, that we're going to do things this way. And I wonder if bringing in Bloom, as smart as he must be, because that team does win on a shoestring budget, if bringing Bloom basically it signifies that that, you know, that that will not change going forward. I don't know. That, that's my only concern about him. But, but and and, and to, to continue the debate before Mike brings it uh, back up, though, um, again, you know, they've been spending the money. It's a question of where they spent the money. And Sandy Alderson, I think we forget sometimes that Sandy Alderson, I don't think, was inclined ever to give out that, those types of long-term deals. And it's why that, you know, I don't think the Wilpons are necessarily the reason why Johannes Cespedes could only get a four-year contract, why he, he only gave a four-year contract to Curtis Granderson. I think that was very much the way Sandy Alderson liked to do things. And I, I don't know whether that's necessarily a symptom of the Wilpons. You might be right about that, Sam. You, you, you just might be fucking, ooh, excuse me, dead on about that. I'll go back to when they hired. <laughs> Sorry, folks. It's always nice I'll go when back to when get dropped without the coop around. You know what? That, that one totally slipped. But I'll go back to when they hired Alderson. If you remember, that was going to be Fred's call. That was going to be Fred's call. And if you remember the initial process that they underwent in search of a general manager, it, it was a joke until Bud Selig stepped in and offered them Sandy Alderson, and, and they jumped all over him with haste, uh, which effectively ended their search, a search that I believe at the time they were incapable of conducting. And I just think, you know... That should have been Jeff's first hire, but it was a hire by default. Here we are, and now this is Jeff's first hire. And I'll go back to that tug of war against Pop. You know, just uh, very, very interesting. Uh, this, this is his first move. You know, I, I, I think Sandy Alderson was one of those patchwork items handed to them by MLB, and they said, "Look, hire this guy." They'll run your organization. Just make sure you get your bank book, you know, in order. And and they're still not being, you know, forthright with us as far as their finances. We know that. They're just not being, you know, upfront and, and honest with us about it. But we know better. So as far as – Rich, you know what, what you say, though, because this guy knows how to operate on a, on a shoestring budget, you know, that might just give them license to continue – you know, in like fashion, and that's scary. But at the same time, I'll be fair, the Wilpons have spent money. They have. They've spent it, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and right up until Madoff. And, you know, they're creeping back upwards. You know, not to our satisfaction, but they're creeping upwards. They're still in... In, in 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 a payment program that still is in existence for another two years, I still think. You know, so they have to predict their economy on a year-to-year basis. Two years from now, I think, is the true test. But I'm ready to move ahead with Bloom. I'm ready. I actually got to have fun. And for a second, play owner, 
and come up with a question that you would like to ask a prospective general manager. Sam, as an owner, what is your question to Rich and I as prospective general managers? Did we lose Sam again? Going once. Sounds like. Going twice. All right, Rich. You're the owner. I'm the GM. Uh, interview me, man. All right. So, Mike, thanks for coming in today talking about the GM job. So here's my first question for you. You've obviously done some research on the status of the ball club before coming in here. So given where we are, uh-huh. we have good starting pitching. We need some help in the bullpen. You know, we have some exciting young players. Given all that, talk to me about what your direction is. Do we tear this thing down and rebuild from the bottom? Or do we keep the foundation and try to add some pieces around it? Yeah. Okay. Sam, you back? Now, that was a brain fart on my part because I still had it muted. <laughs> we didn't lose me. <laughs> my answer to that would be, sure, I could sit down and, and – you know, go through reams of information, stats, video on the year that was, and make an assessment off that. Uh, or I would respectfully ask for one year to evaluate this entire organization. And I will know then with certainty whether we just need a quick retooling or if we indeed need to strip this thing down to the core, grassroots effort. That Fair would be enough. my answer, Rich. Fair enough. So, Sam, I I ask, we're at the part where I ask you guys to play owner, and we would be the prospective GMs and answer the question. So, Rich, go ahead and ask Sam, as an owner, your question for the interviewee. So, Sam, um, here's here's my question for you. It would seem that the quickest way to bring some talent into this organization, some major league ready talent, would be to trade a starting pitcher or two. Those are our most valuable assets. So tell me, would you work from the starting pitching and trade one of our blue chippers like a DeGrom or a Cindergaard or even a Matz or a Wheeler to start to bring in that talent? Or would you seek a different way to do it and if so, tell me what that different way is and be cognizant of the fact that we don't want to raise payroll this year. I personally, if I were the GM, I would not be looking to trade either Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, or Zach Wheeler right now. That is a three-headed monster that could could just tear this league apart right now, especially with the way Zach Wheeler finished the, the year. Even that is a different story. You have to think outside the box of the fact that there is an emotional connection to him being a local boy and growing up uh, playing, uh, you know, being such a fan of the Mets. Um, but I, I think that you, you know, for one, if you were to think of those, like you'd have to get such crazy, crazy returns right now. And, but then you'd also, be in the position of making sure that you have 
your eggs lined up in the minor leagues to make sure you can replace the type of, of skill set that you would lose when losing one of those guys. Noah Syndergaard also, also started coming around. I'm in no rush to be trading Noah Syndergaard right now. Um, and I have to group Wheeler into that because, you, you, I, I, you know, for me, you have to see that pay off after so many years just to all of a sudden trade him, and especially because he's been vocal about not wanting to go. But that, again, I'd also be, you know, I have to play devil's advocate with myself because I said you can't have the emotional connection um, that you have with Max. So um, I guess the only person that I would consider, I think between, you have to, con- you have to think about it. I think Noah Syndergaard is at his best a better pitcher than Zach Wheeler. And so if you were to take from anywhere, you'd have to take it from either Wheeler or Matt's. But I am in no rush asking what Zach Wheeler did to to trade Zach Wheeler. And so I think you you if you're not trying to raise raise payroll, then you have to look at where else payroll is being eaten up. Um, and honestly, you know, you have to consider this. Maybe you got to get Cespedes healthy, and you have to consider trading him, obviously not this offseason, but by the, the trade deadline, uh, to try to spread your, your, the potential return around. And I guess that's, that's basically my answer. I, I, I don't know if you're talking about not being able to raise payroll and having to uh, um, use the idea of not adding payroll and deducting it while trying to bring, make your team better. The only place to look is the status, but he's got no value right now. So I think that you've got a young, exciting potential team going forward. You cannot tear any of that down. Look, look at what's, what's going on in the World Series right now. As good as the Dodgers are, Boston is a buzzsaw, buzzsaw with much better pitchers. And you keep seeing it with the Yankees. You keep seeing it with the Dodgers. The lack of pitching catches up to you in the World Series. And that's why you really have to think about that three-headed monster. All right. I'm going to take my turn. Rich, welcome. I'm Thank paying you. this guy. I'm paying this guy $30 million a year. But my manager wants to discipline him, just to prove a point. I don't pay people to sit. What do you do as my general manager? I empower the field manager to make that call. And I tell the field manager to do what's right for the team. Um, I would have to respectfully push back on your position about that and say that while I recognize you don't want to pay people to sit, I also recognize that we have to sometimes take a short-term hit for a long-term gain. We have to nip bad behavior in the bud. And if the field manager feels as though a star player has not hustled or whatever it might be and wants to bench him for a game or two, I would say that I completely support the field manager in that about the long-term gain and I would be more than happy to explain to you why I made that decision. Rich, from your lips to Joan Payson's ears. Oh, I love you. All right, Sam, <laughs> welcome to my welcome to my interview process. Now, I don't know you. You don't know me. 
we just happen to be in the baseball industry together and we've heard of each other. What makes you so special? What makes you different? What are you going to do to turn my club into a winner? Well, um, you got a good foundation of young players. You've got the pitching in, in line. I need to see where to best maximize performance everywhere. And, and uh, you need to stay contact-oriented. I thought that you guys had uh, a good thing going by the end of the year once you got out of the, the walk-walk three-run homer. Um, and you need to find a certain budget in line, especially with some dead weight, unfortunately, either on the injured list or, or in performance. You have to see where you can maximize all different angles, whether it be from the minor league system or whether it, it be from the free agent system. Um, you know, last year you were able to get uh, um, a, a pretty budget third baseman. Um, I would maybe, I would maybe examine exactly where you can fill some of the holes, and 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 see who's on the free agent market. Um, maybe maybe up what I'm willing to offer some of these guys a little bit more. Um, but there 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 are ways to maximize the budget while also maximizing the type of play that is involved. And you have to see who those players are out there. And they want to come to the Mets. You got to you have to recruit them. All right. Take it away, Sam. Your turn. Ask the question. Well I am wondering as an owner what type of field what type of play you expect to see on the field to win in this day and age. Is that for me or for Rich? I thought you specified Rich, but it was breaking up. Go ahead, Rich. Okay. What type of play expect to see on the field? Um, would expect to have a culture where hustling everything out and playing the game the right way fundamentally is an expectation. So, therefore... I don't care if it's the bottom of the seventh inning in a six-to-one game and it's 100 degrees out and somebody hits a ground ball to short. I expect that guy to give me 100% going down the line every time. I expect people to hit the cutoff man every time. And if we're not doing it, then someone is accountable and we have to take action. The action I would propose would be if players are not hustling, they sit. I don't care if they're embarrassed. And – if guys aren't hitting the cutoff, man, what we do is we show up at the ballpark at 4 o'clock the next day for a night game, and we do outfield drills. We, we do PFP if we have to. Whatever, wherever the issue is, we work on that collectively as a team to make sure we get it right. So if it's one individual, that individual can be punished individual, uh, singly by sitting or by reduction in playing time or whatever it might be. If it's a collective thing where we're not hitting the cutoff man the right way and, and we're not backing up bases, we will show up early as a team and we'll do the work like we would in spring training to make sure we get that stuff right. All right. Um, Mike, here's my question, Same question for you. Okay. Here's my question for you. Jose Reyes has to say. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jose Reyes what? Jose Reyes has to stay. No, in in all seriousness, 
Um, but you said I'm the owner of the Mets, so I'm I'm just uh, you know I'm, that that's one thing I'm I'm saying right now. But uh, go ahead and an- yes, please answer the question that I I framed to Rich. What type of play are you looking for, and do you expect to see from this from a, a Mets ball club that will win in this day and age? At the very least, as Rich said, attention to detail. I want a team that is competent, no, excuse me, masterful at small ball. At the very least, they should be able to manufacture a run the old way, and I will play up to analytics the best I can. But at the very minimum, there must be a a fundamental core, a bottom-level common denominator, an expectation that everyone must meet. And if you do not meet that, the competition will be in place to correct that situation. Because my organization, from rookie level through AAA, will be operating according to one standard operating procedure. And if my third baseman gets hurt today, I can insert someone who will be of similar like mind, manner, fashion, and fit in, hopefully, seamlessly into the ongoing operation. But that has to start with my scouts who bring talent into the organization. So they, too, must be of like mind. Therefore, everyone from yourself, the owner, on down to our most remote scout be it in Asia, South America, Europe, wherever it may be. If I issue a standardized test to everyone within this organization, they should all answer question one, two, and three the same. So I need a fundamental understanding of what it is that we're trying to accomplish on a daily basis. And most of that entails doing your job and maximizing proficiency, efficiency, and availability. And above all else, accountability. But at the very least, you will know the fundamentals of this game and execute the bare minimum. And again, I will try to play up to analytics as best I can when called for. No more, no less. Interchangeable players. Common mission statement. From top to bottom, communication is key. And performance will prove that out. That's my answer. All right. I like it. That's my answer. So, uh, gentlemen, I think we covered everything we wanted to. Let's have a little fun. A few minutes, and then we'll wrap this up. Boston Red Sox are playing the Los Angeles Dodgers in this year's World Series. The series is shifting out to Los Angeles this weekend. 102 years ago, these teams met for the only time 
in their team's history up until this year. 1916, the then called Brooklyn Robins face Babe Ruth's Boston Red Sox. The games in Boston were played in Braves Field. One-year-old Braves Field. It was opened in August of 1915 with vast dimensions. And of course, in Brooklyn, the games were played at Ebbets Field. The 1916 World Series. Sam, Wilbert Robinson's Robins, American, uh, uh, excuse me. Well, you know what? You pick it up. I'll, I'll take it away. Um, what's so interesting about this time is that they would not refer, you know, nicknames weren't really a thing completely yet, but people were calling their, their teams by the, the the nicknames, which are now official as, you know, the you know, it, it would be the Robins, the Brooklyn Robins National League Baseball Club if it had held. Um but, you know, they were referred to the Robin, as the Robins of the time because of Wilbert Robinson, who was the manager. It, they pulled off 94 wins this year in a 154-game schedule, which is extremely impressive. And it was their first – I believe it was their – Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was their first winning season in Ebbets Field, correct? 1913 being the, the, uh, the first year of Ebbets Field. You are correct, my friend. So what's interesting, obviously, I think with the Red Sox, the Red Sox at this point had the experience, whereas the the Robins, un, you know, much similar to uh, the 2015 New York Mets, um, were the up-and-coming ball team. And unfortunately for the Robins and the Brooklyn fans, they lost this series similar to the 2015 Mets at four games to one. Um they they did not like they didn't lose it as tragically as the 2015 New York Mets did, but apparently if uh, the pattern were to continue, um, considering that this was they they won the only game the only game that they won was the first game ever first World Series game ever at Ebbets Field, just like the 2015 Mets the only game they won was the first World Series game ever at City Field. Um, I like you know I find it interesting comparison not just because of the up-and-coming New York National League ball team uh, element of it, but also because City Field is modeled in facade after Ebbets Field. So if the pattern were to hold, the Mets will make the World Series next year and lose it, uh, as they did, in, as the Brooklyn Robins did in 1920. But hopefully they can change that a little bit and win the last game of the year next year. But that's not what we're talking about. Um, what's What's interesting about Game 1, it's similar to Game 2 of the 2000 World Series in that they had a uh, ninth inning uh, push to try to at least tie the game. Uh, unfortunately, they scored four runs but still lost 6-5. to five. And then they lost a heartbreaker. And th- this is the part that, that really gets me about Game 2 is that not only was Babe Ruth the winning pitcher with the game – Uh, being decided in the 14th inning. But the game lasted two hours and 32 minutes with a bottom of the 14th walk-off win by the uh, uh, Boston Red Sox. Flynn was able to win by one run in game three, the first game game at Ebbets Field. Uh, But unfortunately, the next two games uh, were won by Boston 6-2 and the final game 4-1 on 
And at this time, since it was so much earlier, October 12th was when Brooklyn Brooklyn's demise was, was seen. But there must have been a lot of optimism, Mike, at this time for the Brooklyn squad. And unfortunately, it could not hold in the coming years until 1920. But then that was the, that was the last time they saw the World Series until 1941. Well, it was their first pennant of the new century, uh, for sure. Uh, but the Red Sox were in mid-dynasty. There's no denying that. Uh, you know, about that game, too, uh, Braves Field was brand new, and, and the outfield dimensions were just, you know, stupid. Straightaway center field was over 500 feet away. Uh, Johnny, Jimmy Johnston leads off the game w- w- with a, a fly to straightaway center field that probably lands on Bedford Avenue had they played that game at Ebbets Field. It goes for a long out. Two batters later, uh, uh, Brooklyn hits an inside-the-park home run to take a one-nothing uh, one, uh, one lead. Uh, Babe Ruth, as you say, he pitched set 14 full innings uh, for the victory. He only uh, surrendered one earned run. The other was unearned. Uh, no, it was the only run of the game, excuse me for the problem. Uh, he walked three and struck out four. Sherry Smith of the Dodgers pitched 13 and, and, and two-thirds innings. And a hard luck loss. Uh, hey, what are you going to do, right? Numbers I haven't heard of these days. But Babe Ruth pitches his best, uh, has his best season as a pitcher in his career, his brief pitching career. Uh, but the Red Sox are in mid-dynasty, man. Uh, I don't think anybody was going to stop them. They got steamrolled. Robins got steamrolled in this in this series. It, it's funny though because. Like what's going on in this World Series, the Red Sox using their starters as relievers. Uh, Wilbur Robertson was doing the same thing with uh, with uh, Pfeffer. That was his ace of the season. He won 25 games that year, but he used them strictly in relief during the season, uh, the series. Rich, anything about the 1916 World Series? Well, you know, as I look at it, I, I you guys have covered a lot of these what happened on the field. A um, couple things I'm noting here is that at Braves Field, as it's called instead of Fenway Park, which is only four years old at the time, they drew 43,620 people for the final game, which is impressive, you know, because we've been doing this for a while on the podcast. We're talking about, you know, 1920, 1921, 1915, whatever it was. And teams were drawing, you know, five and six hundred thousand for the entire season, and here you have forty-three thousand people for the World Series, which is is a bit surprising to me. Does that surprise you guys at all? Well, it was big. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, was I, I was thinking the same thing. That that game two had forty-seven thousand people, and and that that says a lot about about how. Uh, I guess guess that a lot of more people do pay attention once the the playoffs come around, but, you know, there there wasn't as many distractions back then, and so the entire city's focus ended up being on baseball. That's precisely precisely why they played a Braves field for the added capacity over Fenway, Uh, but it was built, you know, specifically to fit more people. It was only, like I said, it was opened in August of 1915. Uh, but the thing is, you say they drew 47,000. Now, when the series shifted back to Ebbets Field, 
Sam, did you hear that Charles Evans jacked up the prices at the last minute to five bucks a ticket, and people are in an outrage, and that's why they only drew like twenty-one to twenty-two thousand to the game? I, uh, you know, I, I most certainly read that at some point in my my studies. Uh, shameless plug: Bedford and Sullivan, the story of Brooklyn and the Dodgers. Go to Facebook.com and like it. Um, but. I, I, it wasn't fresh in my mind. And, um, you know, Charles, Charlie Abbott was a very beloved figure of Brooklyn, uh, but not then, <laughs> not in that moment. Well, you know, he certainly did that. He jacked up the prices, and that's why they only drew 21000 at Ebbets Field. So I have to say this. I can't help it. If we teleported ourselves back to that World Series and – Said to walk up to any random person and say, "Hey, you know, how much did you pay to get here?" All right, you know, I paid three fifty, and told that person these are actual numbers off of StubHub. That yeah. if you fast forward a hundred and two years to buy a standing room ticket at Fenway Park, a standing room ticket at Fenway Park for the World Series, five hundred and forty-five dollars. Could you imagine what their what their face would have looked like? Five hundred and forty-four forty-five dollars was probably the price of their house. And could you? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! My God! It's it's funny you say that. You know, they were uh, banks were giving out five-year mortgages back then. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> five-year mortgages. Could you imagine? You know, no. I just talked to somebody who bought their house in Jersey City uh, for like thirty thousand dollars in 1969 and just sold it for seven hundred thousand. So. Pretty good turnaround, yeah. huh? That's an yeah, ROI. That's, that's, that's about right. That's about right. Gentlemen, I think that's a wrap. Would you agree? Yep. Yep. All right. Let's start off with the final word. Sam, take it away. Uh, clarity. Uh, I'm I'm glad that there's starting to be a little bit more clarity, and it obviously there it's coincided it's coinciding with their time frame for having a GM go to the GM meeting, uh, and it sounds like. They will, depending, of course, how the series plays out, one way or the other, uh, Anthony DiComo of MLB.com, the Mets beat reporter for them, um, is saying that they should have a decision by Monday, most likely, which is an off day for the World Series. Usually they don't like to announce anything for uh, during the World Series, but, you know, unless you're, unless you're uh, A-Rod, of course. But... Uh, um, I think I think that there's there's going to be a little clarity coming forward uh, about what the the Mets plans are for this off season, and that's a, that's a great thing. Rich? decision. Um, I would like to see a decision made on the general manager. It certainly seems like there will be one made in time for the GM meetings, which take place the week after the World Series ends. So I want to see a decision. I want to see that's the first major domino to fall, so the team could set a direction for the off season. Um, I kind of thought it would be today. I know that they don't, they don't like to make this, uh, announcements during the World Series. I get that. But Mickey was hired last year during the World Series on the off day. So I, something just told me something might leak out tonight about the decision being made. But I could wait till Monday. Let's just make a damn decision already, get the person in place for the GM meetings, and get the, get the process started for the off season. Intrigued. I'm so intrigued. This father-son dynamic has just got me so intrigued. Without polluting this whole thing with all the other opinions we have of the Wilpons, in and of it by itself, this power struggle I just find so intriguing. Uh, I'm dying to see how this plays out. 
you know, moving forward with whomever they hire. Uh, it's just interesting to me how this dynamic with Fred and Jeff is playing out. So intriguing. Gentlemen, uh, it's been uh, my pleasure and my honor hosting you gentlemen this evening. Uh, thank you. And uh, how we how we end this usually goes something like this. Let's go Mets, right? Let's go Mets. Let's, right, let's go Mets. Mets. Let's Good night, everyone. Go. Mets. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for hosting, Mike. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.